All right, if everyone's ready, I think we'll get started. Uh, I'm Peter Van Dorn, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Editor of the Journal Regulation. And this afternoon's first panel is a panel on what we call drones, although the official name is Unmanned Aircraft, uh, Unmanned Aerial Systems. And we have three distinguished speakers, uh, Diana Cooper, Brendan Schulman, and Rob Hawks. And I'll let them introduce themselves and say a bit about, uh, start the conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Diana Cooper. I'm the Senior Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Precision Hawk. Uh, thank you very much for inviting us to participate on this panel today. Um, it's a very timely panel on drone regulations, uh, as we'll be talking about later on in the panel over the weekend. Um, there was a consensus reached between the House and Senate committees on FA reauthorization, and we expect uh, a vote from the House tomorrow on the bill. I'm so excited to talk about that. Um, just by way of background, our company, Precision Hawk, is a North Carolina-based company. We provide hardware, software, and services, and have worked in partnership with the FA to help create safety case for beyond line of sight rulemaking under our Pathfinder program over the last few years. And we're also participating in the new DOT integration pilot program, where we're doing uh, research on things like medical deliveries using drones, as well as uh, infrastructure assessments. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Rob Hawks, and I'm the manager of the operations law branch with the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, my group, at least as far as counsel's office goes, uh, handles most of the drone regulations, uh, either the existing ones or the forward-looking drone regulations, uh, as well as other commercial operations. Um, it's an exciting time to be working in aviation. Um, innovation is on so much more of a rapid cycle than it has been in the past. I mean, we're talking cycles of, of months as opposed to years or decades as viewed with traditional aviation. Um, unmanned aircraft also is operating everywhere uh, as opposed to just at airports, which is what most people think of when they think of, you know, aviation as, as planes at airports. And now drones are everywhere, all over the cities, in your backyard. Um, so where really excited about the, the challenges and opportunities that unmanned aircraft presents um, and working through those, collaborating with the various stakeholders, uh, including you know, the industry as well as, as state and local governments and their unique concerns. Uh, kind of where, where we've been and, and where we're heading, uh, you know, we've laid the foundation for unmanned aircraft. Uh, two rules, one in 2015, the, the UAS registration rule, in 2016, the operation and certification of uh, small unmanned aircraft systems. Uh, you know, that provides a registration requirement for all unmanned aircraft that are, are larger than a half a pound, which is a good number of, of unmanned aircraft, over a million on the registry right now, um, as well as the basic airman certification or pilot certification and operating rules uh, for small unmanned aircraft, those less than 55 pounds. Uh, where we're headed is, is kind of taking that foundation, but realizing that, that innovation is, is much more rapid uh, than what either of those two rules allow. Uh, so our, our initial focus was an incremental approach to drone regulation, a little piece at a time. We realized that may not actually be working all that well uh, with where the industry is going. So we're focusing more to a risk-based approach. So whether we're looking at, at the machine, or the pilot or the operation itself, 
we're looking at the risks that are presented, the complexity of the operation, and trying to right-size the regulation uh, to that complexity and risk presented. Uh, we've taken that approach with a notice of proposed rulemaking that's currently under administration review right now, uh, and that's for operations over people and at night. Uh, we're also using the same approach for some of our forward-looking rulemakings, uh, routine beyond visual line of sight operations, um, package delivery, uh, as well as just transportation of, of property and, and people eventually uh, by autonomous vehicles. Uh, as well as, as aircraft certification standards for unmanned aircraft. That same risk-based approach and, and looking risk-based broader, both safety and security, uh, we're taking with, with our probably our highest priority rulemaking right now, which is remote identification for unmanned aircraft. Uh, that addresses both our safety needs as well as the law enforcement and national security partners' security needs of being able to identify all aircraft in the airspace and distinguishing between the compliant operations and those that are clueless, careless, and potentially even criminal operations. Um, so that's that's our, our rulemaking plan. You know, a lot of this is based on information. Obviously, we need data to, to do informed rulemaking. We have the UAS integration pilot program right now, uh, which Secretary Chow chose 10 state, local, and tribal governments earlier this year to participate to test out new and novel concepts of drones, as well as to help us collaborate with state and local governments on their unique interests, um, as well as, as get that information to inform future rulemaking. Um, one of the, I would say, uh, cornerstone projects and it's multiple projects within that is certification for small package delivery operations. Uh, and that is another, another place where our risk-based approach has come into place, as well as where we're starting to learn that maybe we don't need a rule for everything. Um, so with the small package delivery, rather than creating a new set of rules, we're actually taking a, a tested set of rules, the Part 135 rules, which apply to on-demand you know, aircraft operations, helicopters, airplanes, that have been around for 50 years or more. And, and looking at those regulations, and not just what the words of the regulation are, but look at the purpose behind each of those requirements. And then asking ourselves three questions with each of those requirements. One, is this appropriate for unmanned aircraft operations as well? Um, is it appropriate for those operations, but do we need to make some modifications to reflect reality? Or is this wholly inapplicable to unmanned aircraft? And we're working through those questions on our regulations. You know, we've asked our, our potential operators to look through those questions as well. And we're going to you know, test out probably a few different models on that and see where we need to go in the future. Um, our vehicle, rather than establishing new rules, is to grant exemptions to our current rules in order to use that flexibility um, to, to test out those operations. Um, so that's a, a little look into where the FAA is at right now. I look forward to your questions. Great. Uh, hi, I'm Brendan Schulman. I'm Vice President of Policy and Legal Affairs at DJI. DJI is the world's largest manufacturer of small unmanned aircraft systems, or drones. Some consultants and analysts say we have 70% more share of the, the drones that are out there doing productive things like personal photography, and also everything like search and rescue and commercial operations as well. Um, so we have a really, I think, privileged 
role to play in helping the FAA and others figure out what the rules should be and, and what's reasonable and also risk-based so that people can enjoy the technology on a personal level and also use it to its utmost potential. So my job at DJI is to assist uh, governments around the world in coming up with the policies that make sense, uh, particularly in what is, you know, frankly, a rather sensational environment on the PR side in terms of drone risks and threats, uh, everything from aviation safety to national security to privacy. And some of those are certainly real issues that we all need to deal with and solve together. Uh, some of those are, are exaggerated and, and prone to policies that might uh, be an overreaction. So really, what we need to do is collaborate and work together on things that make sense. And the good news is when we see people using drones, um, even today with the rules that exist, thanks to FAA's work on Part 107 and other governments around the world, these are life-saving benefits. We did a study of just media reports over the past two years on people's who, people whose lives were saved or people who were rescued from peril thanks to the use of a drone. And we're up to 160 people who have been rescued or whose lives have been saved using a drone, even just today. So imagine the long-term potential benefits, notwithstanding the risks that we do have to deal with when it comes to cost-benefit analysis. They're tremendous. Uh, not just economic, but also societal good that will come from drones. So we need to deal with things um, um, that are real problems and also have some balanced perspective. Um, I'm proud to say that we have, I think, led the way on, on trying to implement proactively safety solutions that can already achieve improvements. We have been, for example, using geofencing since um, like five or six years ago. So at sensitive locations like airports, nuclear power plants, Washington, D.C., the drone does not even turn on or will not fly into that area. So we've fenced out electronically using GPS locations that would raise a lot of safety or security concerns. We also implemented a, um, a mandatory knowledge test, also in collaboration with the FAA on the content, to make sure that our customers know what the rules are for safe operation. We want people to use the technology, but also to use it safely. Uh, and we also have been proactive on the, the key rulemaking initiative, including on the Aviation Rulemaking Committee that the FAA had last summer on remote identification. How will we figure out who's flying the drone? Should they be here? And if they do something wrong, people will do things wrong with any technology over time, how to hold them accountable by knowing who they are. And so that's the remote identification requirement that will come from the FAA, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but we've already taken a proactive technology solution approach by implementing a remote ID broadcast into our current products that can be received on the ground by airports, prisons, stadiums, law enforcement. And that's already in use in different airports and, and other facilities. And we're seeing the results of law enforcement being able to respond and also learn how do we use the remote ID technology once we have it. It's not just having the technology or a mandate. It's understanding how to respond as a security or safety agency to the drones that we now have more information about. So I think together, and, and this panel I hope will be a good conversation on how we can do things uh, together to solve the problems and keep that, that the skies open to innovation so that people can go out there and save lives, rescue people, grow their business, uh, add jobs, and, and use the technology productively. Thank you. So let me react to what I've heard. And, and uh, risk-based analysis sounds like something that everyone could agree with in theory, but I wonder if risks appear differently to manufacturers and the FAA. That is, uh, I can think of uh, an analogous regulatory area was 
um, the capital structure of banks and what investments were risky and not risky and Basel one had a, so mortgages weren't risky and we all know sort of what happened. So I just wonder if there's, are there any disagreements about when the rubber meets the road, what, what it means to implement uh, risk-based regulation or whether it's all kumbaya um, between you folks. You know, one of the challenges for our industry is we're an emerging sector within the aviation industry, and the aviation industry has, you know, under the FAA's leadership, a tremendous safety record, the best for the most complex airspace in the world, and that's a recognized fact. Um, and it's difficult, you know, when we don't have decades of experience with our products that are compo composed and tested in completely novel ways that don't fit manned aviation, you know, how do we fit within that mold to help the FAA and the public know that we're meeting a certain level of safety. We haven't really quite figured out what's an acceptable risk. Is it, you know, one drone incident per every 100,000? You know, that's something that, you know, in the coming years hopefully will work out. I, I would say that we're, we're in the same position. I mean, we have over 60 years of experience regulating aviation, got to be the the safest system in the world, in fact, the safest transportation system in the world. Uh, that didn't come from being risk seekers by any means. Um, you know, I would say that, that the FAA, as well as, as the traditional aviation industry, tends to be a fairly risk-averse set of people. Uh, sometimes maybe too risk-averse. I think with, with UAS, we're, we're testing those theories um, and realizing that, that sometimes what has worked in the past um, just doesn't work anymore. One of the biggest challenges we face with this is, you know, we're really good at regulating aviation and the aviation industry is really good at being regulated um, because they've been doing it for so long and they understand aviation and how that works. Unmanned aircraft isn't coming out of the, the aviation industry. It's coming out of the tech industry, which has had a completely different playbook um, for its existence. And it has significant experience as well. Um, so a lot of times what we're doing is, is bridging the gap in knowledge between you know, what it takes for aviation um, versus really what the tech can provide. Um, and I think that, uh, and, and maybe not always willingly, but we're help pulling along um, the industry into a little bit more risk aversion. Um, but at the same time, we're also becoming more accepting of the risk. Yeah, I, I think in fairness to the FAA, this is a paradigm shift, right? We, we All of that aviation for 60 years has involved at least one person on board the aircraft with a life at stake, at least that person's life at stake, probably passengers, and substantial risk of death and destruction on the ground if the plane were to fall out of the sky. Drones are really different. There's no one on board. They can crash and not hurt anyone. Uh, they're small, um, and there's no, there's no passengers on board. They're basically taking pictures of things within you know, certain um, generally low-level uh, airspace. So really different questions about how to regulate that. You know, most drone incidents are inconsequential. So the risk of any aircraft crashing uh, is always substantial because you're, you have someone on board and people on the ground. Um, drones crash usually into trees every day without any consequence. How do you manage 
that kind of risk in a system that's so, for good reason, conservative, slow-moving, deliberate, you know, where many regulations have been developed after really horrible accidents. The FAA was born out of a mid-air collision of two airliners over the Grand Canyon. Um, so this is very different, and I think it's, it's hard to figure out what the right approach is. I think they got it right, I mean, to their credit, with Part 107. They opened up a, a framework for commercial use of drones that, as a barrier to entry, requires taking a multiple choice test. I think 91% of test takers are passing, and we see now over 100,000 certificated Part 107 remote pilots who are going out and doing great things, saving lives and also building businesses. There's a lot more to do, the flight over people, the night operations. We know we're going to save more lives by flying more often at night when actually the risks are lower because there's less man traffic. So there's a lot more to do. But I, I, I do this globally, and I have to say I think the FAA is leading the way vis-a-vis uh, -vis the rest of the world in terms of putting in place the basic commercial framework and letting people get out there and innovate, make money, grow their businesses. So that's the great news, even though we have challenges to deal with. Yeah. I think... Just, um, just to add, you know, the way that we generally think about risk today is what uh, level of risk does this new technology uh, or application introduce into the marketplace and into the public? Um, but we should perhaps also be thinking about what risk is it indirectly or directly removing that's already existing. Um, and drones are a great example of that, um, not only because of their life-saving potential in search and rescue and other types of public missions, but also in terms of replacing jobs that have been very hazardous to human health, like climbing uh, telephone poles for inspection, a pretty dangerous job, climbing on top of roofs uh, to see if there's any damp hail damage after a storm, very dangerous job, not a very good health and safety record for those types of applications previously by allowing drones to be used uh, to fulfill those roles, we're actually overall probably having a net safety benefit and reducing the risk to, uh, to the public. Um, let me throw a monkey wrench into all of this. Uh, um, my experience as a policy observer and teacher is that um, bad policy comes out of a crisis, comes out of some unexpected something or other and the you-know-what hits the fan, and then Congress gets going, and three weeks later, there's a bill. And it then says that the FAA has to do something about this. So I'd like each of the three of you to talk about, I'm sure all of you have nightmare scenarios in your mind about what would go wrong or what would induce Congress to do stuff that would be very counterproductive in, in any of your minds. Uh, any order? Sure. So we obviously have a lot of products out there being used today. So there are a lot of scenarios you could imagine that would trouble us or, or worry us. Um, the good news is we've taken a lot of measures to mitigate that in advance. The geofencing, altitude limitations. We now have sense and avoid sensors, so you actually aren't going to crash into houses and trees. The drone will stop itself. So I think, I think the industry can do a lot. And what we've seen is there actually have already been some of the potentially nightmare scenarios that have actually played out. Uh, there was a collision between a helicopter and one of our drones in the New York City area. We helped with the NTSB investigation. We figured out that was a pilot education issue. Primarily, the person was flying beyond visual line of sight. So there's already an FAA rule that, that addresses that risk. The system had already taken care of it. People will, in any context, any technology, um, get into trouble and have incidents. Here is one that we sort of worried about for a long time, and um, it was actually within the framework that already exists. And it can be mitigated with 
other things. There, there are probably additional steps we could take, like ADSB receivers and things like that, sort of aviation speak. But um, there's more we can do, and we will do. Um, but we're going to learn lessons from that. Uh, we also had what appears to be a, an attempted assassination attempt in Venezuela uh, using our products, apparently. We don't have any direct information from the government. Another nightmare scenario where we thought there might be a backlash. I think um, we already are on the path to solutions to that. As I've spoken about elsewhere, remote identification will help solve that uh, concern, that threat, by identifying the drones that are uh, appropriate to be in a location and those that are rogue. And then there will be a role for countermeasures that we can talk about. Um, but the remote ID will also give you the location on the ground of the person flying and allow a security response um, to go and talk to that person or, if necessary, arrest them or, or ask them to land. So we've already thought ahead some of these scenarios and, and, are, and are working on solutions. Not, when I say we, it's not just one company. It's the industry, it's government, it's all of us up here. Uh, because we, we sort of know that these things are, at some point, inevitable, but there are things we can do to mitigate it. And then I think we, we really need to do the outreach that you're alluding to that there shouldn't be an overreaction. And, and there wasn't in response to those two things. I think because the benefits are becoming clearer. We don't want to shut down drones because of one incident in another country or even here that's either an accident or an intentional misuse, the sort of criminal part of the, the three Cs. Th that's the thing we all should want to um, help address by talking to lawmakers and saying, look, things are going to happen. There are solutions on the technology side, on the policy side. Um, but we certainly don't want things to be shut down just because there's one bad actor out there. Rob? I would say from our perspective. What's your nightmare scenario? <laughs> I have lots of nightmare scenarios with UAS. Um, having, having been through you know, several rounds of accidents on the, the manned aviation side and seeing how Congress reacts, the NTSB reacts, the media reacts, um, there's, there's a very low tolerance amongst the public for aviation problems, um, which is more a testament to their rarity uh, as, as opposed to anything else that people are naturally afraid of flying because um, we walk on the ground. Um, I think from the FAA's perspective, our objective is really to stay ahead of the curve. We realize that bad things are going to happen. You know, even in the, the safest aviation system in the world, there are accidents. Um, there are numerous accidents every year at various levels in the aviation industry. Um, but we want to be in a position you know, to have the best mitigations in place um, and to be able to show that those mitigations overall work. Um, that sometimes helps bad legislation or avoid bad legislation. Um, as well as, as to advance the industry. I'd say that's why we're working so hard right now on remote ID. Uh, that is, whether perceived or real, it really doesn't matter. Uh, that is the, the biggest risk right now uh, with respect to unmanned aircraft, and that's the, the one that we're focusing gobs and gobs of resources on right now. Um, it's actually, it, it's a rather interesting project because we're building a system that really doesn't exist, um, even in the manned. Uh, aviation industry, our manned aviation sector, uh, this, this remote ID concept doesn't exist. There, there are different parts of ID technologies. ADSB is one of them uh, that still is not fully implemented. Um, you know, transponders are, are the old technology, uh, which is, is more of a, a call and receive type of technology as opposed to an always broadcasting. Um, so we have to build something from scratch. The technology really isn't there yet. 
good numbers of pieces are, but it hasn't been put together, um, which makes it a challenge. But we're trying to do it quickly. And uh, thankfully, we have a, a good industry that is also working to implement this quickly. Any, I keep trying to poke, any, any disagreement about risks that the FAA worries about that industry thinks are being overemphasized or vice versa? What struggles where the FAA is rationally risk averse because Congress is going to remit when something happens, uh, which is usually what the morality play that takes place on television? I don't think what's holding up the rulemaking, you know, lately for drones is the fact that the FAA is averse. The FAA has been very forward-leaning and has found ways through other vehicles like waivers or research projects to um, allow people to experiment and start to collect the data that they need to write the rules. Um, it's more so the, the security agencies that have had, you know, concerns that have held up rulemaking. And that's where remote ID and tracking comes in and, you know, long-term true unmanned traffic management and having you know, full uh, infrastructure in place to actually support complete integration of you know, all types of aerial vehicles from you know, passenger drones and um, you know, commercial drones as well as helicopters and, and others. So the, the risk averse, the most risk averse agencies are not here today, is that, what, is that fair? It seems so. Okay. I can think of one example. So, so controlled airspace was set up to um, secure or, or make safe the um, flight paths in and out of major airports, essentially. So many urban areas, most of New York City, for example, is controlled airspace all the way down to the ground because we have three major airports in the area. Um, how does that concept, addressing the traffic of airliners, basically, um, play out with respect to the drone that's doing a building facade inspection in an alleyway in midtown Manhattan? There's no risk to the airliners heading to JFK. Because they have to get permission from LaGuardia to do the, Essentially, the right, window right. inspection. Yeah, so the way the Part 107 rule came out is you can't do that operation without authorization. Now, that means we have a, a rule that, that prohibits it, even when it's in a location that's kind of laughably safe. Um, now, to its credit, the FAA has come up with a, with a technology solution to obtain automatic approval in certain controlled airspace using what's called the Lance system, and you may have heard about that. It's sort of an online request and an instant approval system. So that's great, but we didn't need it. The only reason we need Lance is to sort of undo the result of the regulation that probably should have taken a closer look at controlled airspace, particularly at very low altitudes. You know, why at 100 feet? The airliner should not be at 100 feet in New York City. It's got bigger problems than the drone. So why are we calling that controlled airspace in 2018? or 16 when the rule came out. I think they could have been more liberal, if you will, with, with that, with uh, the treatment of controlled airspace. Um, but I think with an incremental approach, we'll, we'll get good solutions. They might be on, more on the technology side than on the regulatory side. We love Lance. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to, to reshape the airspace and how the airspace system works would have had dramatic impacts for manned aviation, which is what it was set up to work or to facilitate. Um, but what we did is, it, actually, we did that same look and realized at most altitudes, you know, especially if you're not off the ends of the runways, you know, there aren't aircraft for the most part. There's still, you know, even in manned aviation, there are aircraft everywhere. Helicopters can take off and land, you know, anywhere, almost anywhere, uh, just like an unmanned aircraft can. Um, so those have to 
be considered and they're mitigated through other ways usually than, than controlled airspace. But with Lance, we took and, and really evaluated the airspace at those low altitudes and effectively it's an algorithm that's built into the system and it's just mapped out as an okay to go area. Um, so that when somebody, you know, goes online or I think there's even technology now that just does it automatically um, and requests authorization, it kicks it back in, in seconds uh, where some of those airspace authorizations used to take days, weeks, months um, to get processed by hand. Um, so it's, a, it's one of our first attempts at automation uh, and, and it is now nationwide. Uh, it's been rolled out in all parts of the country and we, uh, we believe it to be a great success. Anything? You're satisfied with the FAA response on this issue? Yeah, I mean, Lance has been great for the industry, obviously, and also for relieving the administrative burden and backlog that the FAA, you know, faces in this system. Um, but, you know, it, it is a stepping stone, and the FAA recognizes that it is a, you know, first stage of UTM um, and sort of automated approvals for different types of uh, complex operations in airspace. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a great stepping stone, but it's, it's the first one in sort of a long path that we have forward. Okay. Let me switch gears a bit. And uh, again, I don't know much about the unmanned aircraft. Uh, I study regulation of other things. But um, I've been struck by this, um, that the operator has to have sight of the, has to have the drone in sight. And everything I know about the safety of commercial, of manned aircraft, uh, the safety record over time has improved because pilot discretion, if I understand it right, has largely been taken out of the operation of, of, of airliners. And I've read stories and, and journal articles on the, the kind of uh, cowboy pilot stuff uh, is all gone. That now the computer does everything, the pilots sit there and they don't do very much. And that has what's increased safety. So. Is the having an operator in sight of the drone is are we going to are we going to come up against conflict where the manufacturers or somebody says let's make it computerized and the operator no longer is 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 part of the solution it's actually part of the problem like it was in manned aircraft is that any it, thoughts on that? We're definitely seeing, you know, through the products and the industries that we serve, we're definitely seeing how, um, you know, introducing more levels of automatic behavior and features into the system has made the products and the missions much safer. Um, we started out building fixed-wing air, fixed aircraft that would be hand-launched and, you know, if somebody was going to ruin their drone or cause an issue, it was on takeoff and landing. Those were the hardest things to do. Now with all of that automated, um, people have a much better safety record. Um, so we're seeing ways, you know, and manned aircraft went through similar things when, you know, when they incorporated, um, you know, systems to avoid a controlled flight into terrain, which was a big deal for pilots. And then we had synthetic vision come in and it was no longer happening. So, you know, we're kind of borrowing similar concepts that traditional aviation has gone to and incorporating them into this framework. Um, one of the challenges, of course, is that you still have to have a human in the loop. Um, and I think that's, you know, related to 
decades of regulations and how we think about liability and insurance and, and all those frameworks, you know, that we'll need to adjust as we start to have, you know, uh, critical evidence that shows that actually the machines do it better maybe than the pilots. Eventually it might be um, neglig uh, negligent to actually, you know, fly a drone by using the sticks as opposed to doing it um, automatically. I hope not. It's fun. Well, he's a, he's a lifelong hobbyist, so <laughs> he doesn't want that state. Yeah. So there's, there's at least two important issues here. There's, there's the distance you fly from where you're, the person responsible, the pilot, is. And when you fly far away or behind stuff, how do you ensure you aren't going to hit a helicopter or something else? So there's the mid-air collision risk or collision with objects far away from you. To some extent, you can use a camera, but that tends to look just in one direction, and it might not have the resolution necessary to see a fast-approaching uh, manned aircraft. Um, so there's that. And then there's all the aut automation policy issues that have lately come up with ground vehicles and, and um, self-driving cars. You know, who, who's responsible? And is it the software? Is it the platform? Is it the, is the backup driver who's, who's sitting there but not really paying that close attention to what's happening? Um, those are fascinating issues. I think probably... The last thing we will do to get, last major thing we will do together is figure those things out, is how to fly beyond visual line of sight everywhere, um, and, and to put the computers in charge, not the people on the ground. But at that point, we really do open up sort of a, a second era of, of drone operations. Just, I'm uninformed. How, how would one do package delivery and have line of sight? I just sort of... Is it'd, that... it'd be very short distance. <laughs> All right. It would be so... me delivering you a package right now, my cup of water. And the economics probably wouldn't make much sense. So to get package delivery, we'd have to... We absolutely get... need beyond line of sight and unmanned traffic management to support package delivery. And that's what a lot of us are researching as part of the IPP. Um, the FAs already talked about a Part 135 light for um, package delivery. Mm -hmm. Any sense on when we might see that framework? Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you did. <laughs> so there, there are several of those projects that are part of the IPP, and um, some are, are very early in the three-year uh, course of the program. So it, I, I would say it is not going to be long before you start seeing commercial deliveries where we're going. Yeah, um, you know the the. The biggest challenge with beyond visual line of sight, and obviously package delivery needs to do that. And, and I'd just like to say that there are, in fact, beyond visual line of sight operations happening now. Um, they're primarily testing out the various technologies. The biggest conundrum with this being routine and widespread is there's, there's no one system in place, you know, either an unmanned or manned, that would be able to recognize everything else in the airspace. Um, in the same way that the traditional model of a pilot's eyes does. Um, you know, pilots are still there scanning for other traffic and then the, the regulatory obligation is to avoid. Uh, and there are some rules, rules of the air uh, of how to do that, but that's, that's the one system. It, with automation and, and anyone at the FAA is confident that automation is going to get to this point to do it. Um, but to get all of the inputs, 
they aren't all there. You know, ADSB uh, is not mandatory in most of the airspace, not all of the airspace until January 1st, 2020. Uh, and uh, large portions of, of the, you know, the manned fleet is not equipped with ADSB. That would be a way to, to see other aircraft. You know, transponders, just because of the nature of the technology, doesn't really work. Um, some of the test cases right now are using ground-based radar uh, to have somebody monitoring. And that's probably not a long-term solution. Usually they use that in testing with some other technology. Um, I, I have heard that there's some, based on sound profile, that they can put receivers onto the aircrafts. Um, and that's mainly, you know, it, it really it, 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 where we're talking about, other than if you're in rural areas and talking about agricultural airplanes that are doing spraying and whatnot at astonishingly low altitudes. Um, you know, really we're talking about helicopters um, that are flying everywhere in those low altitude airspace. Um, you know, the sound can pick up the particular profile of, of the rotors uh, and recognize that, that an aircraft's there. Um, cameras is one of the things that's been testing, and, and FAA actually has some experience in cameras because we're, sim uh, you know, correspondingly testing remote towers and whether we can have a camera array and have people remotely sighted not, not in at, at the airport but somewhere else. Uh, and one of the biggest findings, it's depth perception that is very hard to tell on a screen. Um, and, and the technology is advancing very rapidly. Um, and sometimes it can actually place it in, you know, in the, I guess, the distance space better than a human being. But that's a particular algorithm uh, that's built into it. Um, you know, over time, these pieces are going to come together. They're just, the technology's not together yet. and. And, and really, for the rule to make sense, the technology needs to exist because then we write the rule to account for the technology. Let me shift gears once again and, and uh, make an analogy from net neutrality, which is so Congress, the federal government was in it, and then it gets out of it, and then states now are wanting to implement their own net neutrality rules. Um, any sort of worries about state and local action percolating and if there's disagreement in, within the country about, uh, like everything else, like, uh, so I, I don't know of any drone resistance movement, but uh, is there? Well, there are several. <laughs> oh, okay. all right. So are there, will we run into federal preemption and state and local fussing? Uh, in this area? Yeah, absolutely. So this has actually been one of the toughest challenges for our industry to overcome over the last few years. So although the FAA has full authority, um, preemptive authority to regulate airspace, a lot of um, cities and states have been um, creating and enacting their own drone regulations. There have been over 300 bills. Not all of them have been enacted, partly in due to industry activism. But um, there are quite a lot that are in place that are targeting drones specifically um, in not very thoughtful ways, like creating entire ceilings on operations to you know, 350 feet, whereas the FAO only allows to 400. Probably not the safest 50 feet to push all the drone operations up closest to manned aircraft. Uh, maybe it moves them away from the homes, but um, in things like 
disaster response. So in uh, North Carolina, we've been doing a lot of assistance on the hurricane effort in our company, um, looking for um, you know washed out roads, homes, um, bases, and things like that, down power lines, so all these types of hazards. Um, there was a temporary restriction put in on um, flight at 200 feet. So if that were the case, and we'd have these regulations that say, well, you actually can't fly at that lower altitude, then we wouldn't be able to even conduct these life-saving you know, emergency operations. So you know, we think the FAA has done a tremendous job. You know, we've had a bad experience when we had two aviation regulations in this country, as Brendan alluded to. The FAA was born out of a series of mid-air collisions between man manned and military aircraft, and that was because they had different regulators that were not operating under the same rules. They were not coordinating their traffic with each other. So this is a very documented, you know, tragic history that we've had that led to centralized authority over airspace, and we don't want to repeat that with 3,000 counties in the U.S. So, and it, it's a story that, that the FAA and the, and the DOT have told many times, we're always concerned about a patchwork of regulation across the country. Um, you know, we, we very much enjoy our exclusive authority over airspace. Uh, and that we, we get to set the rules in all of the airspace from the tips of the blade of grass to the heavens above. Um, however, with that said, um, we recognize that there are state and local interests and concerns and, and concerns that, that frankly the FAA has never had to deal with before, privacy being foremost amongst those. Um, one of the, the prime, primary purposes of the UAS integration pilot program is to, to look at those uh, state and local concerns uh, in tribal, we have one tribal member, our participant as well, um, and, and balance those against our aviation safety needs and, and airspace efficiency needs and, and see if there's a way to collaborate with state and local governments to find where where that balance rests. Um, I, I would say that now that we're several months into the pilot program, I'm somewhat surprised that none of the participants have proposed uh, state and local regulation, time, place, and manner restrictions is, is what we refer to them as, um, which they can do under the, under the program. They have to coordinate those with us uh, as part of the program. It seems as if, and, and not, necessarily a bad thing that really the, uh, the interest of, of the program participants is really the new and novel, uh, pushing the industry forward as opposed to restricting the industry. So I think it may end up not being the best test case when you look at the other communities that are doing different regulation. Uh, so I think we're going to continue to have opportunities beyond that program to collaborate with state and local governments. In, in FAA reauthorization bill from this weekend, there's a provision there that sets up a pilot program for the FAA to work on uh, remote identification testing in conjunction with law enforcement agencies. Um, so that's, you know, another positive measure that helps address sort of the balance and the issues between, you know, the FAA not having the resources to fully enforce and the locals feeling like they don't have a means to actually enforce all the local laws they do have in place. 
Um, and I think remote ID and tracking is a great start. And you know, UTM and there are there are many frameworks that we can borrow from. You know, highway traffic management and and other areas. You know, that we can look at while maintaining that safety authority within the FA, but taking into consideration the the local challenges as well. So, I, to me, this is one of the most important issues we need to work out as an industry, but but also as a country. You know, who here's this new Technology, it's very much aviation. It is different. Are we going to change the governing structure? Or are we going to do something different to address the differing concerns? And probably we should. Um, but we have to do it carefully, because we don't want to damage the innovation, the life-saving opportunities that Diana mentioned, um, right as we're getting started. So um, about, a, actually almost two years ago, the Drone Advisory Committee undertook to to work and, and think about these issues and potentially recommend to the FAA a course of action or a new way of thinking or, or further studies or something uh, that might be sort of the thoughts of people who cared about this issue. We had on that, uh, the task group working on that, uh, representatives of local and state government, state aviation officials, uh, obviously members of the industry, trade associations, the two of us were on it. Um, it was challenging. This is, a, um, this is a difficult issue because you're talking about who gets to govern, ultimately probably who gets to charge money for, for flights, if that's the thing that is downstream from everything we're talking about. Um, so there's that. There's also the, the political overtones of federal rules, local enforcement. There is even sort of an immigration influence debate about who's going to want to enforce federal regulations in this environment. So it became very, um, almost controversial. There were even Washington Post articles about it that I think were very unfair to the people who participated and put a lot of time and effort into it. We had met for 15 days, 15 full days over the course of about a year and a half. Uh, we had draft reports. We had things. We, we, there was an output that I think is important to look at on this issue because it said, look, if we're going to change who governs what part of airspace, we need to also do things to ensure that the outcome is reasonable and appropriate. We need some kind of framework for what those rules will be. It's not enough to say reasonable time, place, manner. What's reasonable? When people don't understand what drone technology is, what the risks are, you know, and when they actually start to use them, as you suggested in the IPP, they actually maybe are less concerned. Mostly it's the unknown and the fear that's driving it. And at the state and local level, we've seen 300 state bills per year, many of which are not reasonable, some of which are, and we've supported them. And at the local level, people who have less time to understand technology uh, you know, in fairness, the outcomes tend to be even worse and, and unreasonable. So go send the drone innovators out to sue their local governments over whether something is reasonable or not. I think that's a, that alone is a pathway to, to great damage to the innovation and, and all the opportunity here. So we need something different. And I, I think there are, there are pathways to success on this issue. Um, we identified in this task group that enforcement was a key priority for everyone in the group. It was the highest priority uh, when we did a, a very methodical poll of the 15 or 20 or 25 members of this group, enforcement. And that's true. We want, when people do things that are inappropriate, they violate privacy or safety principles, they should be accountability and enforcement. Um, so what do we do about that? In a, in a federal regime with FA's limited resources and, and with, with FA not there on the scene when something with a drone tends to go wrong, who's going to enforce? Um, I think remote identification, which you've heard, is coming soon and which some companies have already implemented. There's now the method to enforce an existing state law, such as unlawful surveillance, 
Um, we've already had a trial in New York State on someone flying a drone, maybe one of ours, I don't know, um, outside a medical facility who was accused of spying on people who were being examined. Uh, he was there dropping off his mother for an appointment and spent his time with his new drone in the parking lot uh, playing around with it, and, and he was prosecuted. The prosecutor felt there was enough evidence to convict him of unlawful surveillance. On the facts, he was acquitted because the, the glass was a mirrored reflective glass, and he couldn't have actually been monitoring anything inside what was going on. So I'm not sure why the case went all the way to a jury verdict, but it did. That's an example of existing state law on privacy working as intended. The difference is, many, in many operations, you, you don't know who's flying. They weren't standing there in the parking lot. If we had the means to identify them and apply existing law, you wouldn't need a reasonable time, place, matter restriction. You wouldn't need to restrict the operation. Instead, you'd focus on the actual pro uh, problems, like invasion of privacy, and, and implement and enforce existing laws that are a balance of things, you know, First Amendment considerations, photographs in public, photographs of people in private places. We've been working out those issues for, for decades as a country, and why change that? Why would you want to change that because the technology has changed? So I, I think we need to be very careful on this and not go down a path that just says, well, you can do anything that you think is reasonable, have an arbitrary line in the sky between where the feds take over, where the local government controls, which is not going to address privacy concerns. You'll just fly at 201 feet if you're trying to spy on someone, plus the difficulty of figuring out how high is that drone, whose jurisdiction, and the patchwork. You know, as, as operators, can you even figure out what all the laws are when they're different from city to city, state to state, with a very portable technology? Unlike manned aviation, drones fit in your pocket, right? So I think that this is really complicated, but super important for us to figure out. And yes, the IPP, I think, will inform that. And we will continue to have discussions and outreach. I, I see people in the audience who've been thoughtful on, on these issues out in the public with op-eds and things like that. We need to talk about it and figure out also the takeoff and landing authority. If, if Cities can currently control whether you can take off or land, which is what the authority they have to place airports in places that are most appropriate for the community. How does that make sense in an era of drones where the takeoff is, is inconsequential? It's an electronic device. So part of this DAC task, the Drone Advisory Committee task group report said, if you're going to change the airspace framework, also change the takeoff and landing framework so that these things work together. Don't provide a backdoor to a restriction on takeoff and landing if you're going to give um, more authority over controlling the actual flight, which is what everyone really cares about. So it's a, gr it's a great topic for further discussion. All right, it's time to open up questions from the audience. Uh, just raise your hand and wait. There'll, a microphone will come and uh, give us your name and affiliation and then your question. Are we ready? No? Here we go. We have a... Ralph Gibson, contractor supporting the Department of Homeland Security, counter UAS office. That's oh. the agency that's not on the... Yes. Yes, the agency that's not up there... That <laughs> Next time. ...has a large... Uh, you know, large... ...dog in the fight, so to speak. Now... The Part 107 deals with you know, cert certificating pilots. Drivers of cars are licensed. Pilots are licensed. Why, why not, you know, the age, you know, age is irrelevant. You know, we could have, you know, why not have 
all drone pilots, you know, have a, a learner's permit to a full license, you know, full capability, so that we have a better understanding of who's flying these things and that they have an understanding of what the rules and regulations are. A kid can go down, you know, you'll get a, a wonderful uh, drone for Christmas and turn right outside and go outside and fly it around and, you know, not understanding what he's doing. Is there, is there a need for increased regulation or increased licensure of pilots? So I think you're referring to the recreational UAS users or recreational users. So what 107 does, does require uh, pilot certification for, for UAS remote pilots in command are what they're called. Um, however, since 2012, the FAA has had a statutory restriction on regulating you know, the, the expanse of recreational or model aircraft users. Um, you know, Congress very explicitly, um, and, and the DC circuit was even more explicit than the statute, um, stated that the FAA lacked authority to create any new regulations uh, for that population, which is why you know, when you look at the aircraft registration or unmanned aircraft registration database, you know, there are about 100,000 uh, aircraft that are being used for, for Part 107 and over a million that are being used recreationally. Um, until the law is changed, we can't really address uh, certification of those, those model and recreational users. Um, perhaps, perhaps the law will change. Perhaps tomorrow. We, we might find out in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> it, that is one of the prime provisions that was dealt with in the reauthorization that we've been speaking about over the weekend. Um, and so the new bill proposes to give the FAA um, full authority to regulate uh, recreational operators, which it hasn't had the authority to regulate um, before. So, I, you know, I think those issues in terms of remote ID and tracking and, you know, things like that will, will get sorted out with this bill. Yeah, I th I th exactly. I think on your who's flying it, that remote ID is coming, and we've, we've already implemented it. So in 70% of what's out there, there's a remote ID function. And, and we've worked with agencies like yours on uh, special events where they've wanted that ability today to actually um, know what's out there and what's flying and, and be able to go and talk to the person who's operating. Um, on training or, or, or licensing, um, we're also supportive of knowledge. People should know the rules. We put that into our uh, equipment last year and we've supported the, the what's no, forthcoming in the bill, the knowledge examination that will be required of, of everyone uh, once this bill, if it passes, is, is in place. And we support that as well. I think the third piece though, the, the sort of flight training or learner's permit, that would be the overkill. Like we, we don't see the risks as warranting that. Um, a lot of the innovation in the industry has come out of people getting into it, including at a young age, and then uh, launching a startup a drone software company, a drone services company. So we definitely want to preserve a reasonable path to people getting involved. Uh, some of these are, are toy size, so you'd have to also make a pretty hard determination as to what are you really worried about. And then, of course, even if you did all that, I think the people you're really worried about, the bad actors, the potential terrorists, are not going to do anything like that. They're, they're going to go and get the equipment, put it together on their own, and, and do things that would be of concern to you and me 
regardless of that regulatory barrier to entry for, for young students that we want to have an easy path to education, technology, and aviation subjects. So I think that third piece would, would be a problem for us. But the first two, we definitely support. The question, the gentleman right there. I just wanted you to comment a little bit about uh, the issue of uh, drone and immigration. If you can speak more of it. Um, uh, drone no. integration? Uh, immigration and drone technology. Oh, immigration. You talking about my comment about that? Yeah. Oh, oh okay. Um, so I was referring to the, the question of um, if we wanted to achieve better enforcement of drone rules made by the FAA, um, should we deputize or allow local law enforcement to enforce the federal rules? And that has nothing to do with immigration other than there is an existing contentious discussion in the country about local enforcement of immigration, federal immigration rules and policies. So the, the question of who gets to regulate and enforce a fe an existing federal framework for drone regulation is just swept up in a completely unrelated and I think not particularly relevant um, political conversation about immigration issues. There's otherwise no connection between those two things, as far as I know, unless you disagree. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, sir, in the middle there. This is a quick legal question. If you own real estate, do you control any of the airspace above your ground, or does your ownership end at the structure top? or the blade of grass or whatever. So I'll, I'll start. So there's a case right on that specific issue um, from I believe the 1950s. It was a case about um, a chicken farmer who was operating his farm and there were military overflights at low altitudes. It caused disturbance to the chicken. They committed suicide and so his farm was damaged economically. So this was the context of a Fifth Amendment takings case. So a lot of people in the industry um, have misunderstood what the principle from this case stands for and have um, used it to support a notion that there are um, substantial privacy rights in airspace uh, to a certain altitude. Um, that's not what the case stands for. The case was, again, Fifth Amendment taking. So even in this case, where it's a government use that's hampering the economic activity, he didn't have a right to stop them from doing that. All he had a right to do was collect damages for the loss of his property. That's very different than saying you can block uh, any type of operations over your airspace to a certain altitude. And there was a lot of criteria in that case, you know, that you know led to that finding. And it was you know substantial interference, so a lot of noise, wind, dust, threat of injury. Of course, with drones, they're much smaller, much safer, less loud. So. You know, it's, it's a difficult case to sort of put into this context, although some people are trying to um, create analogies there. We have run out of time, and so I will end the discussion here. You're free to talk with our guests uh, outside. We have a 15-minute break, so, right, come back here at quarter of. Thank you. Thank you.